Well, welcome today. Welcome to the St. Peter's family and any guests who are joining us uh, here this afternoon or morning or whatever time it is where you are. My name is Lloyd and I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's and it's great that you can join us um, even in these difficult days. We're looking through uh, Ecclesiastes. We're about halfway through now in our series and we're continuing on um, to keep a sense of normality, but also because we believe it has something to say to us um, in this time and in this season. Ecclesiastes is the writing of a preacher who details his search for the key to the meaning of life. This book is part of a genre in the Bible called wisdom literature. It's literature aimed at imparting wisdom, not written in easy right or wrong answers, but written in intentionally awkward ways to, to make us all think. There are strange comparisons and contrasts or paradoxical statements that contradict, but also challenge too. But it kind of works because life is strange, isn't it? Paradoxical, contradictory and challenging. It fits where we're at now and offers something profound today if we just stop for a moment to observe. And that's what we want to do today. So let's have a moment now of quiet and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a, a speaking God, that you can speak to us through many different ways, even through the internet, through recordings. Thank you that you speak to us um, in your word, uh, your written word, but most perfectly in your living word, uh, Jesus Christ. And we are grateful um, that your spirit is the one who imparts wisdom, who gives insight, and we ask that he would do that amongst us, amongst um, those who are listening and watching here today. We pray these things uh, for your glory. Amen. Our passage today is chapter 7, verses uh, 15 to 29. And we see as we go through that it mirrors in its meandering abruptness and subversive randomness some practicalities and perspectives that bring wisdom. So today, we are going to look at uh, three particular areas, the unpredictability of life, the complexity of wisdom, and the possibility of control. We will look at um, the unpredictability of life as we start. Verse 15, it says this, In my vain life, I have seen everything. The preacher here is believed to be either King Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, or someone who came after him but wrote in his name, representative of him. Either way, he is smart, rich, tall, dark, handsome. Uh, we've seen that he has studied, parted, searched harder than any of us could do, and he has lived beyond anything that you or I will be able to live. He's seen everything, but it's not a boast. He's been around to see it all, and that's why he sees that life is unpredictable. As much as we'd like it not to be, it's unpredictable. And so he continues in verse 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. He's lived long enough to see the injustices and complexity of the world. Many of us would say that we don't believe in karma, but subconsciously we might say things like this in our heads, well, he had it coming, or she deserves that, or good things happen to good people. 
But the preacher here realizes and accepts that life is much more unpredictable than that. The human rights activist dies in a car crash. The drunk driver survives the crash that he has caused. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness and there are wicked people who prolong their lives in their evil doing. So life is unpredictable and uncontrollable. There are no guarantees. Despite human wisdom and righteousness, we can't use it to predict what will happen. We can't use it to increase the span of our lives even by an hour. We can't, as much as we'd like to use religion or wisdom to twist God's arm. It would be simple and great if that were the case, if the wise and consequently righteous people could guarantee themselves divine blessings, including long life and wealth, with one-to-one equations of doing good and then receiving good. But that's not the way life goes. It's the unpredictability of life. Secondly then, the preacher observes with us the complexity of wisdom. Life is unpredictable. It would then be ideal for us if wisdom gave us answers that we were able to read and to take like step-by-step instructions from Ikea. That if we followed it, it would lead to a good and glorious life. But no life is unpredictable and so wisdom is complex. Okay, verse 17 is admittedly not very complex. It says this, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? The Darwin Awards are joke awards given to people who act in such stupid ways that their leaving of the gene pool through their stupidity is cause for a light-hearted celebration that it's the survival of the fittest and not survival of the dumbest. Think of the film Zoolander with the scene with the orange mocha frappuccinos where the really, really good-looking models are play-fighting at a gas station in really, really good-looking ways, but then someone lights a cigarette in a really good-looking way but ends up blowing them all up. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? That's obvious. But verse 16 is trickier. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? There are different opinions about whether this means self-righteousness or an overly extreme kind of righteousness. But what we can say for sure is that there is such a thing as a rightness that is wrong. There is also such a thing as being too wise. Now, this could refer to earlier in Ecclesiastes in 1.18, where it says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Do not make yourself too wise could mean that too much wisdom can lead to anger or despair or frustration, existential angst. We've seen that before. Augustine in his confession, sees a drunken beggar enjoying life as he himself was considering the deep and grand things of life. And he realized that guy over there is further towards joy than me. The beggar has a few coins and a full belly, and it seems to do the trick. While Augustine's deep learning and study was leading to his angst and his anger. Or perhaps to make yourself too wise is simply to play the wise person. We all know those kinds of people who love to give the appearance of wisdom. Either way, we see throughout our passage that wisdom is complex. On the one hand, wisdom has its benefits. Wisdom is desirable, it's useful. Verse 19 says this, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. 
Wisdom is better than political or military power. It's better than 10 rulers or officials put together. But on the other hand, what makes our passage hard to systematize and kind of put into little boxes is that there is another side to the coin. Let me just briefly draw your attention to some of the tensions and complexities that we see in this passage. Wrestle with them yourself later on. I don't pretend to have all the answers here. It seems that wisdom is good. But humans and humans' lives are sometimes good and actually sometimes not. There's a famous quote that says this. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the hearts of every human being. Wisdom is good and people are complex. And so wisdom is good, but it's also really complex. We see this throughout the passage. Let me just outline a few of these here for you. Verse 16, wisdom is good, but it's possible to be overly righteous and too wise. Verse 20, wisdom is good, but there is not a righteous man anywhere who always does good and who never ever sins. There is always the risk of tables turning. Verses 21 to 22, wisdom is good, but Remember not to be too hard on your servant when they moan about you because you know how many times you have moaned about other people yourself. Verses 26 to 28. Wisdom is good, but we see how even a wise man and a preacher here seeking out wisdom can only recount his own experience. His experience is limited. Yes, he makes observations about his experience with women, but it is the findings of one man and from one perspective. It is documentation, not doctrine here. He has seen a woman who seeks to to trap men, but we know that there are also men who also do the same thing to women. It's very noticeable that he is very critical and unable to be positive uh, towards the women here. And I acknowledge that that's hard for us to hear. So we need to realize that this is just one perspective, that this perspective needs to be placed within the rest of the Bible where elsewhere wisdom is personified as a woman calling out to be listened to and inviting people to be nourished by her, thereby lifting up the status of of women. Verse 29, human beings are good, but they have sought out many schemes. There is a sense of mathematical inquiry here with this word schemes that you see repeated uh, three times in in our passage. It's literally seeking and finding out the sum of things. Even the preacher's quest for wisdom and meaning have question marks over them, did you notice? The schemes of the preacher to figure out wisdom in verses 25 and 27 involves the same scheming that have caused the uprightness of people to fall down in verse 29. These words bring us back to the Genesis account where God made mankind, and it was really, really good. There was harmony, oneness, unity, trust, and openness in mankind's relationship to God. There was no guile. There was no deception. But then Adam and Eve were schemed by a slippery schemer and started scheming each other. And we have sought out many schemes ever since. Sometimes they can be good, these schemes. Lots of the times they are not good. All of the time, they are complex. Our scheming is to figure out the sum of things, to calculate how things add up, to find out the bottom line, but we want our own conclusions at the end of the day. 
We want to be in control of these outcomes. One of the biggest schemes we seek after when we seek wisdom is the control that comes with power. I can speak for myself here. I read a book by inspirational entrepreneur and self-help guru Anthony Robbins when I was a teenager. I was about 12 or 13. I remember reading on holiday in America when we were visiting relatives as a family. Now, I don't know where I got the book came from. I don't know if my I had my parents buy it at the airport or whether he's so much the epitome of the American dream that it was handed to me as I entered the country by those always friendly American immigration staff. I was so taken by this book, it's called Unlimited Power. It seemed to be the best of of worldly wisdom, when to eat, what order to eat in, when to sleep, how to communicate, how to see yourself and others. I looked it up online this week. Unlimited power is the ability to produce the results you desire most and create value for others in the process. I remember finishing the book and saying to my mum, when I'm older and because of what I've learned in this book, I promise you I'm going to buy you a Ferrari. You might think, what a lovely teenage boy Lloyd must have been, wanting to buy his mum a car. I'm pretty sure my mum didn't really want a Ferrari. I wanted one. And maybe I knew that she would struggle too much to get down into those low seats that she'd have to pass the car on to me, which is kind of what has happened a few years ago with the car that she passed down to me that was neither Ferrari nor bought by me. Notice though the wisdom of unlimited power. It's the ability to produce the results you desire most. It's a kind of wisdom that has to do with control and and power. And that book was either the first or certainly one of the first instances where I wanted to be wise so I could control my world. I could control the outcomes in my world. I could could control other people in my world. And so we come to our third point, the possibility of control. Through the unpredictability of life and the complexity of wisdom, we seek to discover the possibility of control. Commentator Ian Proven says this, Wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of the creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape existence after mortal desires, and to control life. Although certain ways of being and behaving are wiser than others, and in general tend towards life rather than death, yet in the end we must remember that the universe is not a predictable machine, but a personally governed and complex space. Wisdom is not magic. God is not an object to be manipulated, nor does God's world belong to human beings. We wish that it did belong to us. This world was controlled by us so that we could live in it safely and in in a predictable way so that we can control those things around us. And Ian Proven suggests in his comments on verse 16 and 17 that it's possible to be too righteous and too wise because it's possible to seek wisdom or righteousness hoping to control God's hand, whether consciously or not. And so this kind of wisdom wants bargaining chips or leverage before God so that we believe the future becomes predictable and so we can control the world around us 
because we have done certain things or we've gained a certain leverage over God. You see, this is the kind of religion and religiosity that Jesus condemns time and time again, is it not? The kind where the Pharisees and scribes were meticulous about the cleanliness of their kitchenware so that they could be sure of where they stood before God, so that they could look down on other people, so that they could expect God to bless and approve of them. It was all about power and control, not about God himself. This type of scheming for control via wisdom and righteousness is no different to a person um, who is running after wickedness and foolishness. Both are arrogant, both are sin, both are attempts to control reality, to one's own liking. Both are attempts to take the place of God. And this makes sense, I think, of much of modern life, much of the world that we live in. One of the defining characteristics of the modern world is this desire for control. Craig Gay, in his book, The Way of the Modern World, suggests that control is one of the key characteristics of the modern world along with secularity, which is photoshopping God out of the picture, and anxiety that comes because of the previous two. And so as control and excluding God get cemented into our cultures, and they are, and they get cemented into our lives, which they often are, so comes anxiety. We are more aware of how much we don't know about how the world works. And then we become anxious at how we need this knowledge to prevent the world from spinning outside of our control. And so it ends up like a spiral. And I think that's where we are now. And so while we are more technologically advanced than any other generation, with lots of control and seemingly no space for God, we're also the most anxious. And I think we've been the most anxious for a while. And that was before 2020 happened. Wasn't 2020 the year that we could all live out our 2020 visions in our lives and in our organizations and in our churches. Then we could use that phrase and and, and see 2020 vision for for all of our lives. These past few weeks, we've been spinning around so much that we can barely see the person six foot in front of us. We need a reset button or we need to switch something on and off again just to make it start again. But we can't, it's not in our control. Suddenly, we are being told when to shop, where to go, where not to go, that we can't go on holiday, that we can't have visitors, that we're only allowed to buy two packages of toilet paper, that groups of 250 aren't allowed, then 50 aren't allowed, and now we're only allowed to talk to people six feet apart. We're told not to touch our faces, and all we can do is to think about touching our faces. What's going on? We're no longer in control. It's disorientating and dizzying and demoralizing. There is lots of grief. There is lots of anxiety. We realize we miss meeting people, meeting up, having meetings, meeting together. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. We are no longer in control. And so how are we to respond to this challenge in the here and now? What does this writer of Ecclesiastes exhort us to do, call us to do? Well, the first thing is this, it's to fear God in verse 18. Fear God. We are told only those who fear God will be able to resist either attempting to control God or attempting to control reality for their own ends. 
because the fear of God is to stand in, in awe of him with the resulting fear of doing anything to grieve or to dishonor him. This fear is not a kind of cowering fear of a slave to an evil taskmaster. No, it's the reverent delight of a subject to a king, like a pauper entering a palace. This is God's world. The earth is the Lord's and everything therein. Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, we are told. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Only he is in control. He knows what's going on. He sees how this ends. He has a plan and he is on the throne. And what if right now, quote, God is letting us experience just how much we are not in control of our existence. We tend to think that we can make plans, work the plans, and the plans will all lead to the goal, the future we ourselves have imagined for ourselves. But it simply does not work that way. And God is letting us experience that fact. That's what Daryl Johnson says in an article um, talking about what's going on right now. And preacher Tim Keller says this, when we humans think that we are in control of the world, and then when suddenly the world gets out of our control, then we think the world is out of control. But actually, it was never in our control in the first place. It's like one of those tricycles with, with the, the push handle behind it. Have you seen those around? Perhaps a, a family walking together, uh, the child is in a tricycle, and they think that they are going places and they're directing things, but it's really it's the parent behind them who's pushing them. We are like the kid on this tricycle. We think we're in charge. We think we are sorted and have been making things happen very well. We've not crashed into anything at all recently, but suddenly despite our social distancing, despite our going the right direction and avoiding people, suddenly in just a couple of weeks, we realize we're not in charge at all. We feel out of control. But the point is, brothers and sisters, we were never in control in the first place. Let go of that tricycle and your illusion of control and take hold of this and do not let go of this, that God is in charge. He knows what he's doing. He is to be feared because he is on the throne and the earth is his footstool. And so we either fear him by making him our center or something else will control us, even as we think that we are controlling it. Either the world's wisdom dictates that you can control your world without God, or you realize that this is God's world. And our own wisdom can only be a drop in the ocean of his wisdom. Anxiety comes when we believe we know how all of this should end, but we don't. We're underqualified, but thankfully God isn't. Something to do in this crisis when things seem dizzying and out of control, perhaps is to grab a sheet of paper, a pen, and make two columns with um, these headings on a piece of paper. What I don't know on one side, and what I do know on the other. There is much that's unknown right now, 
And those things are on the brink of overwhelming our minds with stress and fear and anxiety. But what do you know? What has God told you about himself in Scripture? What has he told you about you? What do we know about his plans for this world? What has he said about eternity? Write these down. Reflect on them. See that what we do know, mercifully, is, is more than, than what we don't know, even if those things that we don't know are scary right now. Corey Tim Boom says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So we are to fear God. Secondly, we are to come to the end of ourselves. With unpredictability and complexity and seeming impossibility, we come to our limits. But what if we are supposed to come to our limits? What if we're supposed to get to a dead end so that we come running as a child to a good father? What if our illusion of control was killing us? Wouldn't it be a good thing to help us all realize that we're not in control, that someone else reigns and someone else has the controls by bringing it to the forefront of our minds and our lives and our world? At this dead end, wisdom is to embrace the limits of our control and to live into our role as creatures of a good creator. We are not to make ourselves gods, as we often try, but realize that we are those, whether we get ill or not, who are ultimately in the safe hands of a good God. We learn to surrender to him, to realize our place before him. What are you being invited to let go of? To realize that you can't control. Wisdom is the acceptance of the reality that while wisdom is good, we are not to make ourselves God with it. We can't. We learn to accept the limits that we have. We control what we have been given to control. And we are able to affect and influence those things that are put in front of us, that are our responsibility as creatures of the Creator. So maybe get that piece of paper out again. You can use the other side, be very environmentally conscious. Write down two columns again, what you can control and what you can't. Under the can, perhaps it's your attitude, how I follow health guidelines, my own social distancing, turning off the news, finding fun things to do in the house, limiting social media, my kindness and grace to others. Perhaps in the can't column, it's you can't control others following the rule of social distancing or the actions of others or predicting what's going to happen, other people's motives, how long this is going to last, how much toilet paper is going to be at the store, how others are going to react to you. Perhaps in the column of what you can control, you'd consider establishing a set of rhythms that can ground you in a healthy way in this time. Alistair on the website has helpfully suggested seven rhythms for life um, in this season with this virus, with this pandemic. He suggested seven, three upward towards God, two inwards to self, one withward in community and one outward in mission. Do check that out on the website. It's well worth your time. So let me read out the first three rhythms uh, that are directed upwards towards God. 
from the website itself. One, begin and end with presence instead of screen. Before you do anything else or touch a screen, begin your day with God in prayer. Meditate upon scripture and be present to the presence of Jesus. End your day in the same way. Try out the daily offices as a habit and set your alarm to pray for the world and against COVID-19 at 12, 12 p.m. Try lighting a candle at the end of the day to meditate upon the light of Christ as the hope of this world. I particularly like the scripture before phone suggestion. To put it in a cheesy way, keep your phone on aeroplane mode until you land yourself in the runway of God's presence, his control and his love for you. Number two, cultivate gratitude. Cultivate gratitude. Use a gratitude journal in the morning or evening. Develop habits of sharing moments of thankfulness with friends or family. Gratitude cultivates a worldview of grace, receiving all of life and salvation as a gift. And that's been the recurring theme of Ecclesiastes, seeing all of life as gift. Notice too, that anxiety is grasping for control of what we do not have in the future. Whereas gratitude is giving thanks for what we have in the present. Three, keep Sabbath. Resist the urge to make the most or maximize this season. Commit to a full day of rest in which you cease from work, social media, and news for 24 hours. The Sabbath keeps us in sync with the rhythms of God's creation. Read the rest of those uh, for yourself um, on the website. We are to control what is controllable for us, accepting with wisdom the limits of our control. Verse 23 says this, All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. That's what the preacher says. Wisdom is only partially grasped it's okay to come to the end of our limits. The preacher has had a sizable research grant, all the backing of his country, had funding for many years to seek out wisdom. He seeks after it, he desires it. He uses the most advanced forms of visualization. He stands in a formidable way, chest out in a power pose. I will be wise, but it doesn't work. He says it was far from me, far off out there. He says it was deep, very deep down there. Who can find it? I can't. You can't. We can't do it on our own. Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? God understands the way to it and he alone knows where it dwells. You see, there is a wisdom that comes from beyond us, that comes from far off and, and, and comes near. It comes from the greatest of heights to the, the depths of the depths. Who can find it? We can't find it. He has to come to us. Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. United to him, wisdom comes by person to us. Wisdom that is not abstract, not academic, not unpredictable, not mixed, not um, impossibly distant. Not controllable either, but deeply, deeply good, strong and kind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this from verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the, whole, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and, Gen and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So brothers and sisters, the only safe kind of human wisdom is rooted in and centered on Jesus Christ. And this wisdom realizes its limitations and its boundaries, what it can and can't control and trust itself into the hands of a good and sovereign God who sits on the throne and who has the whole world in his hands. Let's entrust our unknown future to a known God who loves us, fights for us, delights in us and promises a certain hope for those who trust in him. Let's close now with a prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen.